recurring dream that I've had since the beginning I started my ministry about 15 years ago. The setting is always sometimes different, but the theme is always the same. I'm in a church service, and everybody is worshiping with all of their heart. They're praising the Lord. And then it comes time for me to get up in the pulpit and to preach, and no one pays attention any longer. It's as if uh, the, the sanctuary turns into a stadium, and there's an uproar from, from maybe a ball game. The, the crowd level is so loud, and I can't cut through the noise of it because my voice is not strong enough to cut through the noise of it. Now, I don't think you need to go deep into that to figure out what it is that stirs on that reoccurring nightmare. I have a prayer that I pray each day that I become an effective communicator for Jesus Christ. And it doesn't take a psychologist to help interpret that dream or when you, when you have already prayed that your desire is to be effective. You see, I understand that one of the things I don't want to become is ineffective in the pulpit. And I think our fears play on some things which can be good and which can be bad. For instance, there's some good things that come from that fear and that reoccurring dream that I have. For instance, I'll pray harder because I can't be so self-reliant. I'll figure out how to sharpen my skills in the pulpit and not just maintain them. I'll try to be as relevant as possible and be good in correcting the Word of God into your lives. But there's also some bad things that go along with that fear, like sleepless nights and also an over-interdependency upon myself to get the work done without the reliance of God working in my life. I recently read a very convincing article by a guy by the name of Telman Knutson, who is a hypnotherapist. He claims that he knows why it is that the majority of us in this room, the majority of Americans, have a big fear of failure. He says it's because we've been taught this from day one in our life, and as we've progressed in our adolescence, into our teenage years, all the way through the completion of college. He said, our educational system teaches us that you better come up with the right answer, otherwise there's going to be some significant consequences. But he goes on to say that fear is pretty good, and failure is good. You need to let some students fail. Teachers in this classroom, I would think it would be a wise idea to let some students fail. The day my son came home with his first F on his paper was a day that he began to take notice and understand he had to really pay attention now in the third grade. It wasn't going to be as easy as it was in the second grade. But Tillman, Knudsen, the hypnotherapist, he has an argument that says, we don't let students any longer fail forward. We put a big F on their, their, their card or on their sheet, and then they go through the process of dealing with that F, and then they begin to feel as if they can't fail forward any longer. Now, I don't know if that is a reasonable conclusion as to why we fear failure so much, but I do know, I do know that many of us, we aren't as risky as we would, we would like to be. We hold back, and it's almost as if we know what we ought to do and the steps we ought to take, but for some reason there seems to be a leash on us, the leash of fear, fear of, of failure. But all of us in here, I think, are rational adults. We think rationally. And we know that without a doubt, because this is a fallen world, there are going to be some failures in this world. But we still fear the failures. And I think, I think the more inclined you are to be a competitive-natured person, the more you're going to fear failure. I think the more inclined you are to be a perfectionist at life, you're going to have high ideals and you're going to fear failure. Maybe you've somewhat been in this room that you've been hurt because of failure. And you don't want to go down that path again. So 
So you have a healthy fear of failure because it's caused you so much pain in the past. The fear of failure, it has some harmful consequences. It suppresses our vision for the future. It makes us timid so that we don't leap as far as we once had tried when we first failed. It limits our, our outlook to try something new. Fear erodes our faith, doesn't it? Because we begin to hide that stuff from God and we say, God, I'll just keep it for myself and I know you're trying to press me forward. I know you're trying to do some things outside of my comfort zone, but I just don't want to seem to want to do them, so I'm not going to trust you with it. I'm going to trust my own feelings. It keeps us from some very holy, risky goals that God has planned for our life. Fear steals our excitement, doesn't it? I mean, it causes us to be overly cautious. And sometimes we just flat out refuse to try something new. And we use all sorts of excuses saying, but what if I fail? But what if I lose some money in this investment? What if I'm not, what if I'm not successful, at least as successful as I think I should be? Jesus had told a parable, a story, about a man whose boss entrusted him with a small amount of money so that he would invest it in the hopes of making a return investment. But here's what the man says to his boss, whom he calls master. Master, I knew you were a harsh man. You were harvesting crops you didn't plant, and you gathered crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master's not impressed with what the servant had done. The master was not impressed with the man's cautiousness. The man was not impressed with his inactiveness. As a matter of fact, the master chastises that servant. And he tells him that he's wicked and that he's lazy. Why? Because that, that man, that servant, had the fear of failure, of risking something for his master. Now some of you are aware of that parable. And you know that the master in that story is God himself. And the servant, well that can easily be applied to us. And God's given us something that he's entrusted to our care. And that story really has to do with fear. Our fear of failure. And friends, you know fear of failure displeases God. Did, were you aware of that? He's given something into our trust. And when we, lack, when we lack trusting in God with what we have, God says, that disappoints me. The Apostle Paul was the encourager and the teacher of a young preacher by the name of Timothy. Now, Timothy was anxious. Timothy was very timid. And so the Apostle Paul gives him this advice. He says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear. Like any fear that you're feeling right now about something in your life or something on the horizon, that is not what God has put in your heart. He hasn't given you that feeling. Timothy, God does not put into your heart a sense of fear of things or timidity. But God puts in our hearts power and love and self-discipline. You see, that's Paul's way of assuring this young man who's very timid in ministry that you can have confidence as you move forward, not because you have a good speaking ability or because you're good with people and you got good charisma, Timothy, but because the power of God is at work in your life and that's the power that he puts within you. So Timothy, you don't need to fear the things on the horizon. You don't need to fear of being a failure in your ministry, Timothy, because God is with you. He'll see to it that you have success. Some kind of success. Now, it may not be the success that you thought you were going to have. It may not be the success that society thinks you should have. But it's going to be the success that God sees to it 
that you should have. You know, I don't think there's a better biblical figure to illustrate how we overcome our fear of failure than the man that we find in Exodus chapter 3 and 4, a man by the name of Moses. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the story, but I would like for you to turn with me to that passage of Scripture in Exodus 3. It's there that we find Moses in the third chapter. He's already abandoned his high position of being the prince of Egypt. He did that to escape an oncoming punishment that he was going to receive when he had killed a zealous, abusive slave driver. So now we find Moses, and he's an old man. He's been hiding out in the desert of Midian for the past 40 years. He's been living a pretty comfortable life, tending sheep, but it's been a quiet life. It was a quiet life until he has an encounter with God, and God lays on Moses a monumental challenge for him to do. You know the story well. He's tending sheep for his father-in-law, and he comes into the encounter of a bush that's on fire, but it's not consumed, and he heads over to the bush because it is a miraculous event, and there God begins to audibly speak to him. Exodus chapter 3, let's look at verse 6 together. I am the God of your father, God says to Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. Uh, move down to verse 10 for a moment. God says, so now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh, that's the king of Egypt. He is known as the Pharaoh, that's his title, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So you get the, the context of what's going on here. Moses, who has walked away from Egypt as being a prince is now being summoned to go back on God's behalf because God's people are enslaved. Now the Jews have been enslaved by the Egyptian empire for almost 400 years now. And it's going to be an enormous challenge for Moses to get them to be set free. So no wonder why Moses was afraid of what God was asking him to do. I think it's a good place to stop. It's a good point to pause just for a moment. And wonder what it is that God's calling you to do. What monumental challenge has God placed on your life that has you afraid of failing? Maybe God's calling some of you young people in this room to go into ministry and learn to be a preacher or to be a youth minister or to lead worship instead of pursuing a more lucrative career. Maybe God is calling you to make a commitment into marriage. You've been living with her this whole time. Why not commit your, your life to her and pledge your love to her? Maybe God has laid on your heart to have children with your spouse, but that obligation, that obligation totally frightens you. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to adopt a child or to become a foster parent in our community. And there is a, an unexplainable tug that is a part of your heart, and you can't explain that tug, but yet when you think about it, it you get excited, but then, then anxiety comes in, and you think of all the unknowns that can happen when adopting a child or foster, fostering a child, and, and you put it off. And the call's there, but you're hesitant to make the leap because of fear of failing. 
God might be calling you to decline some overtime that the boss has asked of you to do because your primary primary work is at home with your spouse and your children. And even though you love your children to death and love your spouse and you want to spend as much time with them, you can't help but fear your financial responsibilities and wondering if you deny the overtime and spend that with your kids, will it make a shortfall in your budget? And so you're fearful to tell your boss, no, I'm going to spend that time with my family. Maybe you've heard the call last week to be baptized into Christ but you had a fear, a sense of what are people going to think if I come forward and pledge my life to Christ? I believe, but I just haven't been baptized yet. And that's held you back. Maybe the last couple of weeks, as Evan preached, and he challenged us to get involved into a smaller group and to Bible fellowship classes. We all know as the church grows larger, we've got to find ourselves in smaller groups to be acquainted with people, to find people who can love on us and whom we can love. But as we have thought about that and considered it, we had a great tug to do, to do it, and we wanted to follow through, but there was that fear of, I just am unsure if people will accept me around here. Or maybe the fear of, I have a problem meeting new people and opening my life up to them. And so you just pushed those challenges of Evan to the back burner and... Even though you still wrestle with it, the fear is holding you back from it. You know, with our, our looming Phase 2 addition scheduled for this upcoming year, there is a part of me that is timid. We're ministering to so many of you now, and as we prepare to make more room at the table so others can be fed like you're being fed, am I going to be an effective preacher and leader? Or is my nightmare going to come true? Church leadership was much easier when, when the congregation was 120 people, you know. As the church grows, the challenges become even more monumental. And as we go quicker than we ever expected, it has become a more daunting challenge as a leader. Talk about fear of failure. I know it firsthand. I think you do too. This next month, I'll be challenging all of us who call Bethany Christian Church home to help make the plans that God has laid on our leadership's heart a reality by asking you to be sacrificial in your giving over the next three years so that more will come to the table and feast on the Word of God like you have. And friends, as I preach through that series, I know so many of us are going to be fearful to contribute to what God has laid in our heart to be generous with. Friends, Moses, understandably, was afraid and he made excuses, one right after the other to God. One right after the other. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I mean, this is Moses in protest. He's saying, God, I don't have the qualifications in here. Who am I to lead this charge? Who am I to lead this challenge? I'm just a shepherd. I'm not the leader of millions of people. Uh, God, I've got some bad things in my past. I murdered a man. Don't you remember why I'm in the desert right now? However, Moses, Moses was more qualified than anybody else that you could probably even think of. He'd been raised as a prince in Pharaoh's household. He knew how... The Egyptian structure worked. It's speculated that Moses might have even been a half-brother to the current pharaoh that was in place at the time. 
Moses knew three different languages at least, and he understood the mind of the Egyptians because he was raised like one, but he had the compassion of heart for the Jews because he is one. He was the perfect guy for the job, but he just didn't see those qualities in himself. Fear always has a way of blinding us from our qualifications. I don't have a college degree. God, I'm not the guy for it. I'm not educated. I don't have the experience. God, I'm not the one to do this because... I just don't seem to have the experience that some others do. God, I'm a single mother. There's no way that I'm going to be able to do that. I'm too young. I don't feel qualified to what you're calling me to do. Friends, God qualifies the called. You don't have to be qualified to be called by God. God says, I'll be with you, Moses. Look at verse 13. Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses is still, he's still in protest mode. God, I don't even know what to tell people. I have no conclusions, no ideas for myself. So what do you want me to say? Because I'm afraid this whole thing's not going to fall. I'm afraid this whole thing's going to fall through. I'm afraid people aren't even going to know who you are when I announce that I've come in your name. And I love God's response. Look at verse 14. God says, I am who I am. Haya asher haya. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now this would have been an understandable line to any Egyptian, especially a Pharaoh who claimed himself to be God in the flesh. For Moses to walk up to the Pharaoh and say, Haya asher haya has sent me to you the God that has always been, the God who always will be, the God who is real has sent me to you, the Pharaoh in his heart of hearts would say, I know I'm not God. And I know there is a God. And I know I'm not Him. Pharaoh, you go with those words that I've come in the name of the true God, the real God, the God that's always been, the God that will always be there, the God that reigns and dominates over this world. And look at verse 16. Verse 16, we read what God says to Moses. He says, go, go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, he's saying, Moses, no more protesting, no more arguments, no more excuses. Just make this happen. Would you take one little step of faith and go to the people whom you trust? Go to the elders of Israel before you go to Pharaoh. And tell them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Verse 17. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land. And he goes on to say, a land flowing with milk and honey. He's saying, Moses, look, the elders are going to listen to you. They're the guys that you need to speak to first but Moses continues to fight with God's plan for his life he is afraid to confront Pharaoh I can't go to Pharaoh and ask for these slaves back you see God these slaves are Pharaoh's workforce he's not just going to give over his his workforce he won't listen to me so God says okay Pharaoh I'll give Pharaoh some signs that you can do on my behalf you you throw down your staff for a minute Moses and watch how I can use you and what's in your hand so Moses throws down a staff. You remember what happens? It turns into a snake. God says, you pick up the snake by the tail. He picks up the snake by the tail, and it turns back into a staff. Not some hocus-pocus magic trick, a miracle presented by God to recognize that Moses has authority of the great I Am. 
Moses, you stick your hand into the inner part of your cloak. And Moses did. And when he pulled out his hand, it became leprous. And when he stuck it back in, it pulled it back out. It was completely restored again. Moses, you use these things as signs that you have great power given to you by me, God says. But that wasn't enough for Moses. Moses had some more excuses. He felt unqualified to be a spokesman of God. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Would you just pardon your servant? I think we find now Moses is just running out of excuses. Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent. Neither in the past nor since have I spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Moses tells God the very thing that I think any of us would tell God. I'm not a good public speaker. Just the thought of it makes my nerves wrecked. But there was going to be no excuse that it was going to be good enough for God. God was not going to let Moses off that easy. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4, the Lord says to him, Who gave human beings their mouth? Uh-oh, that excuse is not going to work. Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it an eye of the Lord? That's God's way of saying, I'll take care of the stuff that comes out of your mouth. Verse 12, now go. I'll help you speak, and we'll teach you what to say. No more excuses, Moses. And Moses pleads with God one last thing, one last thing. All excuses are exhausted on Moses, and Moses just finally pleads in verse 13, pardon your servant, Lord. Notice these words, please send someone else. God, that's why I've been dancing this whole time. I just, I don't want to do it. I don't want to fail. I don't want to have to achieve this monumental challenge. I, would you just send somebody else? The assignment is terrifying to me. But God wouldn't let him off the hook. Because this wasn't about Moses. This was about those who were enslaved in Egypt, whom God's heart was for. And he was using Moses to accomplish his will. And all he wanted was this out of Moses. Are you ready? All he wanted out of Moses was simple obedience. And fear keeps us from that. Fear keeps us from obeying God and His calling to our life. And notice verse 14, there is something that I want you to see. I want you to see, of all this story, I want you to catch. Verse 14, and the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Mr. Excuse. Mr. I don't want to do it. I'm not qualified. God says, guess what? My anger is resting right on you. Now get your stick, get your staff, do some miracles, and get your brother Aaron. He'll do some talking for you. Get the elders rounded around you. Go to Pharaoh and do what I'm asking you to do, Moses. You know, Moses walked away from that burning bush that day trembling, a nervous wreck, his knees shaking, totally unconfident in what God was asking him to do. And I wish, I wish I could tell you that after Moses did what God asked him to do, that there was nothing but success for the guy. But there wasn't. There were setbacks and there were tons of disappointments along the journey. Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not release the people. Don't you remember the plagues that had to come And it wasn't until finally Pharaoh himself was afflicted with a great plague of his firstborn being killed that he finally let the people go. And when the people went, 
Do you remember their response over and over time and time again to, to Moses? You'd think they'd be so happy and thankful for their freedom, but they were thankless. They never thanked Moses for what he had done. And now, just weeks later, in the middle of the desert, now free people, they say, I wish we were back as slaves in Egypt. And they begin to chastise and humiliate Moses as a leader. There are all sorts of disappointments for this poor guy. He did finally what was right, even though he gained all sorts of excuses. And there were setbacks and disappointments. And I think there's some lessons we can learn here briefly as we wrap this up from the life of Moses. Some things we can apply to our life like this. Number one, understand everyone has fear. Every single one of us in this room has fear, and it can be very healthy for us. We need to understand that fear is normal and sometimes a very appropriate reaction to things. God can use fear for good. If you're afraid to fail, it may motivate you to prepare more. You may start to pray harder, seek advice. You might become a more humble spirit because you know that it doesn't just all uh, rely on your gifts and skill sets. I can't tell you how many times leading a growing church with plans for expansion just two years after we moved into a new building has put me down on my knees in prayer. Very fearful of what's lying ahead of us. I think there's a healthy fear there that needs to be a part of who we are in life because it can produce a lot of good. I've recognized I can't do this on my own. I'm going to need a lot of God to make this happen. Here's the second one. Confront fear. Face it head on. Don't let your fear of failure hold you back from what God's calling you to do. Let me say it again. Don't let your fear of failure hold you back from what God is calling you to do. That tug on your heart, the desires and passions in your mind that you say, I just can't get it done. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough availability. We don't have the kind of education. No, when you, when you do what God's asking you to do, God will see that there are appropriate measures in place for that calling to be accomplished. Don't look at to excuses like Moses did. Let's learn from Moses. Let's first obey and then recognize that God will see us to success. Friends, there is no greater satisfaction than diligently doing what God has called you to do the first time, first time obedience. You know, last week, four people came and were baptized into Christ. But after the services were done, several more came up to us as staff and said that they would like to be baptized too. And there were a couple that just flat out said that the reason why they didn't come during the middle of the service was they were too fearful of what others might think. Now, they made appropriate uh, uh, arrangements to be baptized later on in in this next month but they they willfully admitted that because they didn't step out when god was calling them to step out they're they're weak all week long they felt that they weren't doing what was right that they had failed god friends when we don't obey god and the tug that he puts on our heart. We miss out on the pleasures and the satisfaction of obeying God when he calls us to obey him. Here's the third thing. We all need to expect failure. It's a part of success. If you don't risk anything, there's not going to be a reward of anything. 
There are going to be setbacks. There's going to be times of defeat. And Moses' success wasn't instantaneous. But friends, failure doesn't mean you're outside of God's will. Sometimes we think that as Christians, if I fail, it must mean that I'm outside of God's will. No, that's not what it means. Failure isn't finality. Some of you think at the first sign of failure, well, that must be it. We've got to call it quits. But that's not what God does in our life. If that's what Moses had done, he would have called it quits the moment that Pharaoh said, no, I won't let the people go. Failure is not finality. Failure is an inevitable step to success. You ask any business owner in this room some of their key principles to being a good business owner, and they probably won't tell you about the things they've done right. They'll tell you about the failures they've had and what to avoid in business. Just if you were to come to me and say, how is it that you can be a good minister? I wouldn't tell them the ways you could be good. I'd tell them all the ways I have failed over the last 15 years. I'm not sure how to be good, but I'm sure not what to do. I'm positive on that. I had a baseball coach that would say it to it like, like this. Every ball player is a failure. The best only hit the ball three out of ten at bats, and they're considered all-stars. I think that's a way of saying expect failure. It's a part of success. You don't hit a home run every single time. You're going to strike out, but it's what you learn when you strike out for your next at bat. Here's the fourth thing. Think of success in God's terms rather than society's terms. This is a big one. If you're wanting success in life and to feel that God's doing something through you, you've got to start, start thinking God's terms, not society's terms. If you only determine success by the world's standards, you're going to be overcome with discouragement. Here's what God told us. God told us, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Remember, the way God does things is not the same way the world does things. The way God sees success is not the same way that the world or society sees success. By the world's standards, I think Moses appears to be a failure. Twelve times before he could get his way. But from God's perspective, Moses was a great success. After his excuses were ran out he walked away trembling in fear taking small steps in God's direction and long after his death a memorial was made by New Testament writers in Hebrews chapter 11 and in chapter 11 verse 24 I think it is the writer of Hebrews says this memorial by faith Moses When he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure of Egypt because he was looking ahead, looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw, he saw him who was invisible. The end of that scripture is so powerful. Because of his faith, Moses left Egypt. Moses had seen the invisible God that day, and he wasn't afraid any longer of what any king could do to him. His faith had overcome his fear of failure. So today, whether you have nightmares about being an ineffective preacher or leader, or maybe nightmares about failing at your business or your marriage or letting someone down, when you encounter God, a God who will never leave you, a God who will never forsake you, 
Hayah Asher Hayah. I've always been. I always will be. I'm going to continue to be the same real living God. The God that you find in the Bible is the God that's at work in your life today. When you discover that God who's going to stay with you regardless, you have nothing but success on the horizon. Not failure. You have nothing to fear. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah puts it like this. So don't fear. For I am with you, God says. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I'll help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. So today, instead of continuing in self-reliance mode and continuing down a path of fear, of failure, because you've only, you know, have, have put your trust in yourself, why not put your trust in Christ? He solved your biggest problem, your sin problem. Why not receive him as Savior today? You, you know what? You know what courage is? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is action in spite of fear. And today, the call is this, that you walk out of here courageous followers of Christ.